couple items I put before your consideration uh, this morning. Uh, the first is next Sunday, things will look a little different on the stage here. We are going to do uh, some remodeling, some finishing. Uh, you'll see an imperfect, incomplete project. It'll take us a couple weeks to do it. If you're interested in helping that in any way, you want to hold something heavy, run a tool, I don't know what they're doing up here, call Barb Germinder, contact her in the church office. And I know she would love to take any of your, uh, your help if, if you're offering. More importantly, you may have seen in your bulletin that on May 22nd, we're providing an opportunity for any faithful follower of Christ to obey in the command to be baptized. If you have not been baptized, we, through the year, provide different opportunities for you to do that. It's a public declaration of what has happened in your heart and the faith that you have. So we'll be doing that May 22nd. If you would like to be a part of that, please contact the church office. Well, it is good to worship with you, brothers and sisters. And worship is our consideration this morning as we continue our series on the character of the church. We see throughout the scriptures that the church is to be a worshiping one. That is to be part of our DNA, our practice, not just a trait, not just a hashtag, or even not just a period of time on a Sunday morning. It is to characterize our very lives. Now, when you think of worship, what comes to mind? Well, I think I can give a general answer that many of us gravitate towards, and that's we think of music. We think of singing songs, the lifting of hands, a worship team playing music. Perhaps we think of the feelings that come when we engage in all of this. And music, no doubt, music is an act of worship. But what if I told you that worship is much more than that? What if I told you that worship being thought of largely as music is a modern invention of Western 20th century thinking and theology. What if I told you that when we use the word worship, it is often radically disconnected from how the scriptures use that word? Well, are you a little nervous? Maybe offended? Uh, curious? Well, good. Brothers and sisters, remember our great mission. Our mission here is to reproduce faithful followers of Christ. We are here to be shaped by biblical living. We are here and aim to have the character and the worship at Lakewood mirror that of the scriptures. So my main point, my main idea I'd like for us to consider this morning is simply this. It's all worship. It's all worship. I don't know if there's supposed to be an apostrophe on that. So you grammar nerds, you know, send me an email. I, I debated on whether to put one on or not. It's all worship. I'll ask that you grab a copy of the scriptures and turn to Romans chapter 12. We'll be in verses 1 and 2. And they're just two short verses that will lay out for us a true comprehensive vision for worship in the New Testament church. Verses that will show us that all of life is an act of worship to those who claim to be a faithful follower of Christ. 
I have, uh, there's a writer that I really enjoy, uh, uh, a preacher who was in Britain for a number of years. He's on with the Lord. And I was reading uh, his work on Romans 12, 1 and 2, and he had 11 sermons on these two verses. Well, I'm, I'm going to do my best with, with one here. So whether, my friend, you come here to a worship service on a Sunday and you sing and you give and you serve and you sit under the word of God or you find yourself on a Monday morning drinking coffee, shuffling through work assignments through the week or kids even playing video games with your friends, it's all worship. Well, but... Is it all biblical, God-honoring worship? We are forced, I think, to define this word from the scriptures at the outset. The word, as we use it in English, comes from a much older English word, worth-ship. Worth-ship. What I show worth towards. What I acknowledge as worthy. What I give honor to. What I adore. What I show reverence toward. That is what I worship. And immediately you can see that you have not met a single person in your entire life who is not a worshiper. I think it was Paul Tripp who famously said, Worship is first your identity before it is your activity. You are a worshiper. You see, by nature, faithful followers of Christ, unbelieving skeptics, and those who are considering Christianity, they are all worshipers. Whether it is Jesus, sex, money, sports, grades, friend groups, or yourself, every one of us finds our identity in something, and that something is the worship of our heart. And it becomes clear that not all worth Ship is biblical, but maybe not for the reason you might suspect. The word worship in our English Bibles, depending on which translation you have, can show up a couple hundred times. You could argue that the word is used maybe three times, depending on how you cut it up, to refer directly to singing. Only three times. Largely, this word worship is used to describe service, Bowing down, allegiance to idols or false gods, allegiance and honor to God of the scriptures. Worship describes sacrificial rituals and paying homage or showing honor. Well, in our passage this morning, Paul uses this word worship. So consider with me three aspects of worship that we find in Romans 12. Uh, read with me, please, just these two verses. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good 
and acceptable and perfect. Well, first I'd like us to see the motive for worship, the motive. It's this first phrase in verse 1 I want to sit on for a moment. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters. And I don't add sisters in there just because it's Mother's Day. But that word really is uh, an equivalent to, hey, you guys, all y'all, all y'all, brothers and sisters. You didn't know Paul was from Alabama. All y'all, men and ladies and children. By the mercies of God, it says. And there's probably a whole sermon just in this one phrase, but look carefully with me as we see the motive for worship in the Christian life. I urge you, I appeal to you, I exhort you, I beg you, Paul says, therefore, by the mercies of God. Now, it has been said, whenever you see a therefore, you have to ask, what is it there for? This is a call, a begging, an urging in light of the first 11 chapters of the letter we call Romans. It is an exhortation to action on the basis of the mercies of God that have been revealed throughout the whole letter. We often run to the command to worship in our text and we run past the motive of that worship. And I think we do ourselves a great disservice when that is the case because our motive in worship has great significance. Let me prove it to you. Imagine my wife asks me to take out the trash. You may be a husband who has heard this call on your life. You may be a child who's heard this call on your life. It goes something like this. Matt, sweetheart, would you please take out the trash? My response is the only appropriate response. As you wish, dear. I don't, I don't know why you're laughing. That's what I say. That's what I say. Now, what could be the motive for my response and my subsequent action? What could be my motive? Well, perhaps I take out the trash because I love her. Because I want to serve her. I want her to know that I'm for her. But what if my motive was different? What if I want to take out the trash so I can hide the used box of ammo shells? What if I want to take out the trash so I can quickly dispose of the documents revealing an overseas slush fund? What if I want to take out that trash and I'm motivated to hide the evidence of an entire carton of double-stuffed Oreos that I ate last night? And I eat Oreos by the sleeve. My motivation, my motivation for taking out the trash matters. So it is with our worship. I beg you, therefore, in light of the mercies of God, your motivation being those mercies. What exactly are the mercies of God? In short, the mercies of God are the simple truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news is that Jesus died for sinners and rose again, giving new life, forgiveness, and a new heart to anyone who trusts in him. The mercies of God are the collective story of what God has done for humanity. 
the mercies of God go something like this throughout the book of Romans. Naturally, we all exchange the truth for God for a lie and worship and show allegiance and honor to ourselves and the world, Romans 1.25. Naturally, even religious people aren't right with God because of all their rituals, Romans 2.2. Naturally, none of us, none of us are righteous. None of us seek after God, Romans 3.10 and 11. Naturally, we all sin and fall short of His glory, Romans 3.23. But, but now, righteousness and forgiveness is available through faith in Jesus, Romans 3.22. But now, like Abraham, we are children of God through faith, Romans 4. But now we're no longer in Adam. We are in Christ, Romans 5.12-21. through 21. But now we are dead to sin. It doesn't rule over us, Romans 6. But now we are no longer slaves to ourselves or to the law or this world, Romans 7. But now the Spirit of God lives in us as adopted children, Romans 8. But now God still plans to save his people whether Jew or Gentile, Romans 9 through 11. The mercies of God. Read with me at the end of chapter 11. It's on the same page probably. Starting in verse 33, chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Oh, brothers and sisters. Paul is no dry, bored theologian. He looks at the mercies of God throughout a letter. This doctrine, this teaching of Christianity, it leads him to doxology, to praise, to celebrate, to worship. What are the mercies of God that motivate us? His gracious, good, powerful workings and promises in the life of every faithful follower of Christ. What is our motive for worship? Mercy. The good news of Jesus. Christians are not motivated by moral ideals. We are not motivated by self-righteous living in comparison to that person you don't like. We are not motivated by earning our right standing with God. We worship. We serve. We bow down. We show worth to God in worship because of the gospel of Jesus. Jesus is enough. But we see not only the motive for our worship, we see the totality of it. I get this directly from the rest of verse 1. Look again. He says, To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. 
It's this word bodies that really strikes the contemporary ear. Obviously, Paul has more in mind than just singing, more than just the words of our lips. He says our bodies, our actions, our whole lives are to be an act of worship. And many of you know this, but I remind us here that Paul is a Jew. In the context of the Old Testament worship that we have, we have a picture of what kind of service he's talking about. I read this week something really helpful from one writer who explains it this way. Paul uses temple terminology here. The metaphor he uses is that of a worshiper at the temple who comes with an offering. Now, some offerings in the Old Testament were sin offerings in which the worshiper was shedding blood and asking forgiveness. But Jesus is our sin offering. That's what the entire book of Hebrews is about. Therefore, the offering Paul points to is not a sin offering. The second kind of offering was the whole burnt offering, which was a valuable animal from your flock. It had to be without defect, holy, and without blemish. Why? Such an animal was expensive. It showed that all you had was at God's disposal. You did not give God your leftovers. The burnt offering was always burnt totally, and it represented complete consecration and devotion to God. To be a living sacrifice is to be fully at God's disposal. It means actively to be willing to obey God in anything, he says, in any area of life. And passively, to be willing to thank God for anything he sends in any area of life. Did you catch that? That's a life-changing concept of worship. Our bodies, the totality of our lives are a living sacrifice. Our whole lives are at the disposal of God. In many ways, it would be easier to go back to the Old Testament sacrifices. Instead of giving my whole life, I just pick one of my kids, I mean one of my lambs, and I say, I, I, I give my offering. But, but, but Paul comes and he says, oh no, no, not, not a spotless lamb. Your life is worship. Your life is a sacrifice. Well, we are to show him honor, worth, reverence, and follow him in every area of our life. And here's one of the great lies of evangelical culture and language. That our spiritual worship is only what we do on a Sunday morning. Or even more narrowly, our spiritual worship is only what we do during singing time. Don't get it twisted. Sunday morning is a special and unique time for worship. We should gather to worship in singing and in prayer, in word, in giving, in service. We should do that. But Paul is urging us in light of the gospel, in light of God's mercies, to view everything in our life as worth-ship. Everything as an act for the one who died and rose again. Everything as an act for the one who forgives sins, restores broken souls, and gives us right standing before him. It's all worship. 
He even calls it our spiritual worship. You may have a better rendering that says reasonable in your translation. Reasonable or proper or true worship and service. The word is actually the same word we get the word logical from. So you could say it's our logical, reasonable worship. The most rational thing that you and I can do is to present our bodies, our lives to God in light of what he's done for us. If you believe that Jesus died for you and that he rose again, the most logical thing you can do is offer your life as worship and sacrifice to him. If all of life is worship, and I think it is, we fulfill the words of that old catechism question. Perhaps you've heard it before. Question, what is the chief end, the main purpose for man? Answer, man's chief end or purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We glorify and enjoy him in every area of our life if our heart is bent towards doing it for him. So what might this look like on a Monday morning? you got a week coming up. What does it look like this next week for you and I to do that? You give your life to Jesus' church and sing and gather and give and serve your brothers and sisters. That is worship. You give of your time and your money to see the gospel go forth, not just in our community, but to the ends of the world. That is worship. If, you, if your whole life is an act of worship, then folding the laundry, changing exploding diapers, and taking out the trash is service to Christ and worship. If Paul says, whether I eat or I drink, I do all for the glory of God, then my late night snack and watching the NBA or NHL playoffs is worship as I recognize his kindness in these gifts. Going to work on a Monday morning, digging a ditch. Yes, kids, maybe even playing your video games can. It can be an act of worship to the Creator if you are loving Him, honoring Him, celebrating Him. Oh, I thought the teenagers would be, you know, giving me some amens on that one. Kissing my wife. Worship. Hugging my children. Worship. Cutting the grass and watching Dora the Explorer again. It's all worship. Because everything we do is an act for our King. There is no secular, sacred divide for the faithful follower of Christ. No such thing. Everything is sacred. The pots and pans are sacred. Every area of our life, every act is in a service in the life we've been given. A life that Paul urges and begs for us to see as a sacrifice, a living one, a life lived in light of God's mercies, a life that sees every moment under the lordship of Christ, a life that takes every opportunity to think act and speak in a way that lifts high the name of Jesus. Do you love to worship? 
If you love to worship, that means you love to show God's worth in every area of your life. That is loving worship. Here's a good quote I came across this week. Little children do not need little truths. What they need is someone to direct their eyes beyond themselves to the brilliant plan, breathtaking might, and bottomless love of the Lord who made them. Their world may be small, but it is a theater for the king's glory. Young and old, we need to see our world, our life as a theater for the glory of God. We are motivated, aren't we? Oh, I want to be motivated, but we are. In a sense, we're growing in our love and motivation for his mercies. And we don't worship just in a short time frame once a week, but our, our bodies, our lives, our hearts beat to bring God glory. Lastly, I'd like us to see that our worship, I want us to see the product of our worship. Would you read with me again verse 2? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We've seen the motive, the totality, and now the product. And I'll admit I squirm a little bit at this last point because I'm not sure, I wasn't sure how to frame everything that this verse has. So the text is inspired. My, my cute little attempts on points aren't. But I say the product of worship because there is a result from the action or the process of our worship. And the result, the product of our worship, seems to be summed up in two imperative commands. In verse 2, command number one, do not be conformed to the world. Command number two, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Two requirements given so we can know God's will and what good, acceptable, and perfect worship looks like in the life of a faithful follower. One thing I would point out is the fact that there are commands here at all. There are forms of Christianity, so-called Christianity, that fall on the ditch of two extremes. The one extreme being that we must do everything ourselves in our own strength and in our own ability to please God. The other extreme is that we must do nothing at all. Paul blows both of those out of the water in our passage because in light of the mercies of God, in light of Jesus being enough, in light of what he's done on our behalf, God's saving us in Christ. Present your bodies as a sacrifice. Do not conform to this world, but be transformed continually in Christ. It's always both end. God did this for me, so I will live and act and obey in light of his goodness. But what does it mean to not be conformed to the world in our life and in our sacrificial worship? Some of you may have a notation in your Bibles that the word world is better understood as the word age. It's the same word that Paul would use in our study back in Galatians, where he said in Galatians 1.4, that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us 
from the present evil age. So a non-conforming to this world, a non-conforming to this age is to simply aim, act, and live as true worshipers of God rather than ourselves in the creation. That was Paul's statement in Romans 1, by the way, that we referenced earlier. This age, this world, we all naturally suppress the truth of God and worship everything but God. Paul says here, your reasonable and logical worship in light of those mercies is to not be conformed to a world that refuses to see him as creator and sustainer. We are to not be conformed to this world and give God honor and service and worth that he is due. The product and the result of our life of worship is to put God at the center of our life. Now, you and your unbelieving neighbor, you may have a very similar life from a distance. Perhaps both of you have the house, the truck, some money in the bank a boat, a spouse, 1.25 kids, and a cabinet full of witchcraft. I mean, essential oils. Lisa has me drinking those. I don't know what's in them. So your life from an unbeliever may look exactly the same. What's the difference then? You are not conformed to this world and age. Despite all that you have, which are all kind gifts of God, Jesus remains at the center of your life. It's hard to give yourself over to sin and false idols when Jesus is at the center. That's the difference. In contrast, the second command in verse 2, we are told that the product of our worship involves our obedience and being transformed by the renewal of our mind. That transformation of mind brings knowing God's will and having a life of worship that is good, acceptable, and perfect. So the question naturally is, what does it mean to be transformed by the renewal of our mind? And I think I come back to this verse almost every other sermon. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Your true, rational, logical worship is to honor and serve God with your life and continually look and behold His glory. That will transform your mind. Beholding him, looking to him, seeing his glory in his character, in his promises, in his work on the cross, seeing his glory even in his imperfect local churches, seeing his glory in his grace and mercy, in his word, and in his continual work in you, brother and sister. Be transformed by the renewal as your mind, in the renewal of your mind as you keep looking to Jesus. As you look to Christ, who is able to walk on water and keep you afloat as you find yourself drowning sometimes in the choppy waters of life that you've been given. 
Look to him. He will transform you. Lakewood, brothers and sisters, it's all worship. All of it. Our desperate prayers, our daily tasks, our giving, our serving, our singing, it all points to the worth and to the glory of the God-man. The God-man who substituted himself and died in our place, paid our sins, satisfied God's wrath, redeemed us from the curse. And he powerfully, literally, physically, supernaturally, in fulfillment of God's promises, rose again. He offers to us adoption, forgiveness, and a life of worship and service to him. To those who trust in him and cling to him. If you have not trusted Christ, if you are a little kid or an old grandpa, if you have not trusted in Christ, I invite you to consider him now. Consider a life that would bring true satisfaction. You are a worshiper, my friend. You are a worshiper. Worship the one who is eternal. Worship the one who satisfies and forgives. Worship the one who's done great things for sinners like us. The King of Kings. If you are a faithful follower of Christ... Be renewed even now in the spirit of your mind. Understand your whole life as a sacrifice to him. And my friends, you're already doing it. He will continue to work and shape and equip each of us to grow in this more and more. Is it everything it could be right now? No. But he is kind. He is working. He is transforming. Pray with me that this would be true of us this week. Father, we do pray these big prayers. God, would you help us to see your mercy? Would we be motivated by it? Would we be changed by it? Would our worship, our life of sacrifice, be demonstrated in everything that we do this week. God, whether it's a large task or the most mundane of a normal day, would you energize us to see that you take great pleasure in the life that we live for you. You take great pleasure at our imperfect attempts to show worth and honor to your name. So would you meet us this week and show us that you are near and powerful. Enlarge our hearts to do this great task. It is not simply our duty. It is the longing of our heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.